Hello and welcome to Dystopian Deep Dives with your host, Natalie Donna. Today is a solo mission. The sad hard truth is that if technocrats wanted to do something about sex trafficking, they could. But the tech bros in Silicon Valley both participate and capitalize from the sex industry. It is also a transhumanist ethos that saturates Silicon Valley, a belief system that at its core does not value or even like life on this planet. It is no secret that Silicon Valley and the tech world at large is based off the exploitation or demeaning of women. Look no further than the first imaging technology. In her book, Brotopia, Emily Chang writes about Lena. Lena Soderberg started out as just another Playboy centerfold. The 21-year-old Swedish model told the magazine she'd left her native Stockholm for Chicago because she'd been swept up in American fever. In November 1972, Playboy returned her enthusiasm by featuring her under the name Lena Schubloom in its signature spread. If Soderbergh had followed the path of her predecessors, her image would have been briefly famous, then relegated to gathering dust under the beds of teenage boys. But one particular photo of Lena Soderbergh would not fade into obscurity. Instead, her face would become as famous and recognizable as the Mona Lisa's, not to most Americans, but to everyone studying computer science for the next half a century. In engineering circles, some refer to Lena as the first lady of the internet, but others call her the industry's original sin, the first step in Silicon Valley's exclusion of women. Both views stem from an event that took place in 1973 at University of Southern California, where a team of researchers led by William Pratt, Ph.D., was trying to turn physical photographs into digital bits. The work would pave the way for the development of the JPEG, a compression scheme that allows large files to be efficiently transferred between devices. But the JPEG was far into the future. In 1973, researchers needed to test their algorithms on suitable photos, pictures of full detail and texture, and their search for the ideal test photo led to Lena. A digital age they are creating has ushered in more opportunities for sex traffickers and large corporations complicit in this business to thrive. This is largely because the technological futurists see women and human beings as a whole as nothing more than machines. This idea has been embedded in the human psyche since the beginning of widespread slavery. According to Wikipedia, evidences of slavery antedate written records. The practice has existed in many, if not most, cultures. Mass slavery requires economic surpluses and a high population density to be viable. Due to these factors, the practice of slavery would have only proliferated after the invention of agriculture during the Neolithic Revolution about 11,000 years ago. It continued into the modern age after the Industrial Revolution with Norbert Wiener's term cybernetics. There are many forms of modern slavery that are not as cruel as our ancient ancestors lived through. When people talk about being a wage slave, I sort of laugh. At least you're not being condemned to death after the emperor dies and you've basically built his burial temple your whole life, as was the custom in ancient China. Humanity, in my estimation, has made at least a little progress. However, there always seems to be the urge to reconstruct humanity through the eyes of the power-hungry. This society rewards psychopaths and Silicon Valley is no exception. People are in denial, and one of the hardest issues to look at is sex trafficking. If you even mention it now, you're 
a cannoli entryway kook. Yet, it is human slavery that continues because tech giants and the state refuse to do anything about it. It's a big business. There are entire industries propped up by the exploitation of women and children, according to the International Labor Organization report from 2014. Human trafficking earns profits of roughly $150 billion a year for traffickers. The following is a breakdown of profits by sector. $99 billion from commercial sexual exploitation, $34 billion in construction, manufacturing, mining, and utilities, $9 billion in agriculture, including forestry and fishing, $8 billion is saved annually by private households that employ domestic workers under conditions of forced labor. While only 19% of victims are trafficked for sex, sexual exploitation earns 66% of the global profits of human trafficking. The average annual profits generated by each woman in forced sexual servitude, 100,000, is estimated to be six times more than the average profits generated by each trafficking victim worldwide, at 21,800, according to the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, OSCE. Keep in mind that these numbers are likely a lower estimation of the goods and services exchanging hands via exploitation. When you factor in other areas of the sex industry, the number is probably a lot higher. And recently, the National Center on Sexual Exploitation, or NCOSE, reported that Amazon, the world's titan of e-commerce, logistics, data storage, and media, also peddles endless amounts of sexual exploitation in every corner. Amazon's Twitch is rife with sexual harassment, predatory grooming, and child sexual abuse. Amazon retails incest-themed porn, sex dolls, photography books with eroticized child nudity, pornographic magazines, and more. Amazon Prime Video inserts unnecessary, gratuitous nudity and simulated sex scenes into many of its original programming while providing faulty parental controls. Amazon S3 and Amazon Web Services are also host to thousands of hardcore violent pornography and prostitution websites. If they wanted to stop it, they could, but there is an anti-human culture that is seeped out of both Silicon Valley and the Academy. It's always the old boys club that rears its ugly head. It is no secret that Silicon Valley's attitude around sex is what I call Nike sex. Just do it, no boundaries. Emily Chang has covered the ongoings of the boys of Brotopia for years. From a 2008 Vanity Fair piece, Oh My God, This Is So Effed Up, inside Silicon Valley's secretive orgiastic dark side, Chang writes, About once a month, on a Friday or Saturday night, the Silicon Valley technorati gather for a drug-heavy, sex-heavy party. Sometimes the venue is an epic mansion in San Francisco's Pacific Heights. Sometimes it's a lavish home in the foothills of Atherton or Hillsboro. On special occasions, the guests will travel north to someone's chateau in Napa Valley or to a private beachfront property in Malibu or to boat off the coast of Ibiza, and the Bacchanal will last the entire weekend. The places change, but many of the players and the purpose remain the same. From reports of those who have attended these parties, guests and hosts include powerful first-round investors, well-known entrepreneurs, and top executives. Some of them are the titans of the valley, household names. The female guests have different qualifications. If you are attractive, willing, and usually young, you needn't worry about your resume or bank account. Some of the women work in tech in the Bay Area, but others come from Los Angeles and beyond, 
and are employed in a symbiotic industries such as real estate, personal training, and public relations. In some scenarios, the ratio of women to wealthy men is roughly two to one, so the men have more than enough women to choose from. Women who engage are then called gold diggers. Tech pros do not see women as human, but as objects to be conquered and shamed. It's a story as old as time. Men in power exploit their positions to exploit others. This culture is precisely why it's okay to defend pedophilia on Twitter, but not talk about sex trafficking issues like cannoli entryway. The issue with that particular story is that it clouds a very real and important topic, however intriguing it may be. And now, when you try to broach the subject of trafficking in the sex industry, you are a crazy QAnon Trump voter. It's all by design. This is why they were so afraid of cannoli entryway and had to shut it down. If a massive enough number of people become hip to the very damaging effects of the sex industry on all of us, it would mean no more cash. Entire industries would be put out of business. They may have to admit that they use minors in blackmail espionage schemes. Some people like to split the difference when they discuss sexual exploitation. However, it seems that OnlyFans has also made NCOSE's list. Quote, OnlyFans is the latest iteration of the online sexual exploitation marketplace. OnlyFans makes money off of vulnerable people's bodies, especially the bodies of women and minors, exploiting financial insecurities deepened by the COVID-19 crisis. OnlyFans promises fast cash, empowerment, and even fame. While fans may pay fees for nude images, videos, and live streams, it is the creators who pay the high price of psychological, emotional, and physical harm that the sex industry imparts. As a self-branded influence platform, OnlyFans also normalizes prostitution among young persons. There are arguments that frame this issue around victim-blaming. They say that these girls want to do this type of thing. Maybe part of that is true, but the other issue is this. If money weren't involved, would there be willing participants? Money, in my assessment, equals coercion. Perhaps there are some truly exhibitionist types, but I doubt the numbers would be so high if it were only those that were actively given consent to do such work, so-called work. This entire culture has been programmed to believe that women who choose to exploit themselves are liberated. This is one of the big, big lies they tell you. The state and tech bros want to normalize their deviancy. Prostitution, exploitation, and money are also historically linked. The oldest exchange of money was for men to go see temple prostitutes. According to Tracy Twyman, that is where the first use of coins began. Quote, Ishtar, in whose temple money was invented as a form of payment for the sacred prostitutes that were her priestesses. Some of these prostitutes were also men who had been castrated. Sexual exploitation is nothing new and connected to ancient sacred practices. People who have power simply seem to display this behavior throughout space and time. This brings us back to the lost boys of Silicon Valley who never want to grow up, and in fact want to break through space and time with their technology. Douglas Rushkoff describes it as anti-human. Quote, the anti-human agenda of technologists might not be so bad, or might never be fully realized, if it didn't dovetail so neatly with anti-human agenda of corporate capitalism. Each enables the other, reinforcing an abstract growth-based scheme of infinite expansion. 
utterly incompatible with human life or the sustainability of our ecosystem. They both depend on a transcendent climax where the chrysalis of matter is left behind and humanity is reborn as pure consciousness or pure capital. I'd say consciousness and pure capital. Transhumanism is indeed anti-human because its entire ethos is based around the idea that man is a machine, but also that man can make machines superior to himself in a path towards his own self-annihilation. It is also no secret that many technological futurists participate in the practice of the occult. At its very core, transhumanism is an idea closely linked to certain Gnostic and magical belief systems. If you truly believe that an evil entity created this world, you might make it your mission to escape it or actively destroy it. In his book Team Human, Rushkoff writes, Self-actualization through technology meant leaving the body behind. But this was okay, since in keeping with the Gnostic tradition, the body was the source of human sin and corruption. The cosmists talked about reassembling human beings atom by atom after death, moving one's consciousness into a robot and colonizing space. The cosmists pulled it all together for the fledgling American transhumanists. They believed human beings could not only transcend the limits of our mortal shell, but also manifest physically through new machines. With a compelling optimistic have your cake and eat it to gusto, the cosmists told America's LSD-taking spiritualists that technology could give them a way to beat death. This may explain stories published in the last decade, like this one from 2015 in The Cut, entitled, Tech Bros Now Hiring Psychics to Cast Charms on Their Computers. Reverend Joey Talley, a Wiccan witch, frequently casts spells to protect precious hardware. Most people want me to protect their computers from viruses and hacks, she says, so I'll make charms for them. I like to use flora. Jet, a black gemstone energy blocker, is ideal for debugging office hardware, Tally says. Bigger or more vulnerable computer networks often require a rainbow of colors to divert excess energy. If all else fails, she can cast a protection spell on the entire company, office supplies included. Or how about this article from Vice? Internet occultists are trying to change reality with a magical algorithm. Users of the Sigil engine, though, rely on the code to do much of the legwork. When visitors land on the URL, they are greeted by a sparkling black background and a prompt to type their intention. Doing so will set the engine in motion, drawing the sign in bright red. Co-creator Dara Mason, who hosts the Spirit Box podcast, describes this flourish as a prayer or a moment of reverence to the goddess Babylon. Found within the Telemic system first synthesized by British occultist Alistair Crowley, the backdrop alludes to the great expansive void from which all things spring. Then there is this Atlantic piece from 2016, Tech Billionaires Want to Destroy the Universe, which claims that a mysterious cabal of technocrats with a lot of cash want to breach the simulation. They are not named, but are convinced that they'll emerge out of this drab illusion into a more shining reality, lit by a brighter and more beautiful star. But for the rest of us, the experience would be very different. You lose your home, you lose your family, you lose your life and your body and everything around you. Simulation or not, everything would disappear and it would be the end of the world. Unsurprisingly, nobody bothered to ask us whether we want the end of the world or not. 
They're just setting about trying to do it. Silicon Valley works by solving problems that hadn't heretofore existed. Its culture is pathologically fixated on the notion of disruption. Tech products no longer feel like something offered to the public, but something imposed. The great visionary looks at the way everyone is doing something and decides single-handedly to change it. The author goes on to write, Wealth is being concentrated in fewer hands. We own less and less of our own lives. And meanwhile, these brave entrepreneurs are automating even more decent-paying jobs, turning humanity into an ungrateful sea of surplus flesh to be connected and quantified, but not necessarily fed, because that's what progress looks like. And once social reality is the exclusive property of a few gigal thinkers, why shouldn't physical reality be next? With Google's calico-seeking hedge fund investment for human immortality and the transformative technology lab hoping to externalize human consciousness, the tech industry is moving into territory once cordoned off for the occult. Kabbalist mysticists Descartes with his deceiving demon and Zhuangzi in his butterfly dream have all questioned the reality of our sense experiences, but this isn't a private, solipsistic hallucination. In the simulation hypothesis, reality is a prison for us all. Its real antecedents are the Gnostics, an early Christian sect who believed that the physical universe was the creation of the Demiurge, sometimes figured as a snake with the head of a lion, a blind and stupid god who creates his false world in imperfect imitation of the real creator. This world is a distorted mirror, an image, in other words, a kind of software. Gnostics were often accused by other early Christians of Satanism. Many identified the jealous, petty, purient god of the Old Testament with the Demiurge, while sects such as the Ophites revered the serpent in the Garden of Eden as the first to offer knowledge to humanity, freeing them from their first cage. And something Luciferian persists in the techno-gnostics of San Francisco, they have decided that our universe is the conscious creation of a higher power, and now they're massing their armies to storm the gates of heaven and go to war with God. Unlike Goethe's Mephistopheles, their doctrine is omnicidal. All that exists deserves to perish. Indeed, some, like comic book writer Grant Morrison, have so little reverence for the divine that he looks at magic and sigils as a way to hack reality. Grant Morrison said of sigils at the 2000 Disinfo conference, I'm here to tell you to try it when you go home tonight because it fucking works. We're dealing with some kind of operating system that can be hacked using words. And words seem to be the binding agent for this thing, whatever it is. Why would a tech culture that believes this is a simulation care at all about human life? The answer is that they don't and that you, fellow human, should take this very seriously. The fight for the future is part information war and part spiritual. Perhaps forms of power and exploitation truly do come from occult practices that deeply believe that this life, with all its flaws, ebbs, and flows, is wholly a negative experience. It is a childish approach to life, one devoid of self-responsibility or the evil present not in God, but man himself. These men are psychopaths. In her book, Trampled by Unicorns, Big Tech's Empathy Problem and How to Fix It, Mal Gavitt writes, Research by the FBI, 
found that companies managed by psychopaths tend to have deceased productivity and low employee morale. In fact, Silicon Valley's psychopathic traits trickle down throughout the entire organization, in effect creating psychopathic companies. This is enabled by an infantilized culture at many startup companies where employees become accustomed to working in hyper-privileged bubbles where their every whim is catered to and every need anticipated. Escapism is a form of denial. Instead of focusing on the problems here first, like the fact that human slavery still exists via the very technology Silicon Valley creates, technocrats choose not only to escape, but to try to destroy this reality. They have low to no regard for this human experience and therefore could never really have empathy for any that they exploit. And they want you to feel the same way that they do. If the technocrats wanted to do something about human exploitation on the internet, they could. However, they participate in a culture that is inherently exploitative and rewards psychopathy. In a New York Post article, Why Silicon Valley CEOs Are Such Raging Psychopaths, Eric Spitznagel writes about the hair psychopathy checklist, the universally accepted diagnostic tool used to assess this so-called disorder. A psychopathic personality includes traits such as grandiose sense of self-worth, a lack of remorse or guilt, poor behavioral controls, pathological lying, and a lack of empathy. These attributes aren't just present but celebrated in Silicon Valley, says Gavitt, who once held the position of Executive Vice President of Global Operations for Priceline Group. I would argue that these modus operandi exist to larger swaths of the professional and academic culture in the United States. This is how the dominant culture operates and continues. The system rewards those that are corrupt, power-hungry, and devious. Unless we get more comfortable with confronting and naming evil for what it is, we will not be able to surmount or overcome what we are up against. Do you love this planet? Do you love people? As Rushkoff would probably say, are you on Team Human? Without the true liberation of humankind, which includes the shutting down of the sex trade, and I mean all of it, we will never progress. Will this moment in time be an awakening to the quickly encroaching tech billionaires who want to destroy the universe? Only time will tell.